everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Finding the balance between coach, mentor, and collaborator takes more than a master's degree and a few internships. It actually takes years of experience testing your role and your approach to strength and conditioning. But not everyone is as forthcoming as Nate Brookerson of NC State. He believes that the real detriment to our community is the illusion that each coach has it all figured out. Nate has taken on the challenge of speaking more openly about training that has worked and protocols that have not worked. As he explains, the testing is about the individual, their abilities, performance pitfalls, and history of injury. In a position where you're expected to be an advocate for the student athlete and a loyal team player with the staff, it's important to run towards the difficult conversations rather than away from him. Those are the wise words of Nate Brookerson. Here's episode 331. Nation. Welcome to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Hang, hang, hang. That's your McConaughey pause. Ladies and gentlemen, today is a very special episode. No, it's not Matthew McConaughey. I thought it was Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey. It's like the uh, it's every day. The SNL where they had, I still remember it, Joe Montana. <laughs> and I, I legit mm-hmm. thought it was Joe Montana. And then that was like the skit of his opening. Is like there's a dad and a son in Joe Montana jerseys. And they're like, who's Joe Montana? And I still don't know to this day. No, I thought that was the water boy. Yeah. That's in the water boy, that's you remember? That's in SNL skit. Oh, is that what that's yeah, from? Probably still, yeah. It was, well, Adam, it Sa- yeah Adam Sandler it. years for sure. Oh for yeah, sure. yeah. Joe oh. Montana was a quarterback, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I said Joe Montana. Well, what are we talking about? Oh, I know why it's special. Because, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, there are only a matter of weeks left to get your ticket to the premier experience in strength and conditioning in Austin, Texas, in the world. In the world. Ever. Ever. December 5th, 6th, and 7th. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about the Power Athlete Symposium, the 2019 capstone event for this organization and our coaches network and our network of super sharp and smart and inspiring individuals that we want to put on display and present to our followers, those who are fortunate enough to show up, get their ticket, and party. I think sometime or the last time something was this influential mm-hmm. was a couple of Greeks got together and decided to do some stuff a long time ago. Oh yeah, I was going to say when the meteor hit the Earth and extincted the dinosaurs. Extincted. Do you know how fast the meteor was moving? Impactful? Is Seven? That, is that like a pun? No. Seven uh, miles an hour. They they estimated the impact. It was a asteroid the size of Texas mm-hmm. hit the Earth and it was moving fifteen miles a second. 15 miles a second? Holy fuck. Yeah. Just when that would so even hit the atmosphere, when, when, Every, everything's fucked. When I learned that and I was like, 15 miles a second? Jeez, I don't even know what the speed on that one is, but they said 15 Nobody miles does. a second. I don't even know if anybody knows that. Fuck, man. I was thinking about... Um, I mean, can you imagine the size of the slingshot that must have shot that thing? <laughs> I just imagine there was enormous. like a big, a big giant with a big slingshot and slingshot just shot around that. the moon. Um, uh, I was, that was what, a documentary. What was... There was a... What are you fact checking me? Oh my goodness, you're way off. So, accordingly, this crater has a name. So that yeah, I can't even pronounce it. The it's Chicks, in Chicxulub. It's in uh, Yucatan. Mm-hmm. Well, it's go on. All right, estimated diameter of eleven to eighty-one kilometers. 
that's either 7 or 50 miles, somewhere between that, and delivered an estimated energy of 21 to 921 billion Hiroshima A-bombs. That's the estimate. I thought it was the size of Texas. Um, I'm fine with all the facts you've said. Nothing he has said has disproven anything you've said. So everybody's <laughs> well, right. But the story wins. This safe of range, 11 to 81 kilometers, that's a big margin of error. On what scale? The NASA <laughs> Exactly. No, what they did is they did uh, projections. Uh, they have that deal where they're able to strip away, uh, like they fly over, and I forget what the machine's called, but they're able to strip away all the jungle, and they were able to find the crater and based off of so the, the impact of the crater. the crater itself is 180 kilometers. That's mm. 110 miles for you Americans. So let me, let me go ahead and tell you what I was, gonna, I was talking about. Does ever, has everyone seen Independence Day? And this yeah, it was a documentary. Do. The yes, one the documentary with... Uh, Will Smith. Uh, Willie Smith. Great. Save the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's got Randy Quaid. So here's the thing. How, th- those, those spaceships that enter the atmosphere, right? Like, they're, they're enormous. So when they come in to the atmosphere, don't they have to displace that air? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, think about pushing your fist into a balloon. The balloon de- deforms. So mm-hmm. that air... Get into a crowded hot tub and the water overflows? Well, I mean, assuming that there's no... Because, pla- uh, you know, it, uh, Texas Flat Earth has the idea that there's this bubble over uh-huh. the top of our well, atmosphere. It's a spinning disk. It's fortunate the asteroid caught it at the right moment, face up, to eliminate all those dinosaurs. So if you have to displace that much air simultaneously with five enormous ships the size of Manhattan, doesn't that affect climate? Uh, yeah, I think what they said was that when the asteroid hit, it, it, it created a nuclear winter that lasted for like... So you're still some... talking asteroids. You're talking Flat Earth. I'm talking Independence Day. This show is doomed. Uh, <laughs> but uh, look, there's, there's apparently another theory out called the multiple impact hypothesis. Come on. Yeah, give it to us. read it. Holy shit. Is this a dramatic pause? <laughs> yeah. You can't read and talk at the same time? Obviously, I do not. You want me to read it popcorn. Aloud. Yeah, I popcorn. Can't, rate I can't pronounce half these words. The <laughs> my hour. <laughs> the, the ladies and gentlemen, the, I'll continue to talk about what I was talking about in the first place. The premier experience in strength and conditioning. That's right, people. We've ditched the clinic concept. It's no longer a conference. This isn't a seminar. This is an experience. You're going to show up to Austin, Texas, and we're going to immerse you in the Austin experience with the Power Athlete Twist. We have a killer kickoff event featuring Wade's Army Silent Auction, benefiting Wade's Army. We have day two, a Power Athlete-led practical. The first two hours of your day are going to be led by Power Athlete John, myself, Tex, our coaches, and we're going to be torching you. We're going to be teaching you all sorts of new shit that you don't know about coaching and you don't know about training. That leads into some sort of group brunch type setup. And then we get right into speakers who are going to blow your mind. Here's what we're going to do day three. Rinse and repeat. But we're going to have some of the sharpest, most engaging coaches that we know lead their practical sessions so that you can walk away with something to apply, whether you're a coach, an athlete, or enthusiast, uh, or a parent looking to set an example for their kids. Like you're going to have tools in your toolbox and, and your transformation is that weekend, baby. So if you are interested or you are snoozing, what are you even doing? Get to events.powerathletehq.com slash symposium. Now, if you're wondering what the multiple impact hypothesis is, Tex has news for you. Basically, 
300,000 years apart. So they're saying, I don't know, it wasn't one big impact. They struck in the same spot, 300,000 years away, uh, apart from one, one no, another? No, they're more than 4,500 kilometers apart. And one of them's in Jersey. That's all I could acquire in that 30-second promo that you... Uh, 300,000 years apart. How many generations is that? Well, if you think about how long long the nuclear winter lasted. So what what did they say? There was something like the equivalent of like, uh, what was it like? uh, um, I forgot the number, but it was like like the Hiroshima bombs. What did they say? Like uh, like a million? Was like a million Hiroshima bombs going off Uh, at once? It was... 21 to 921 billion. Okay. Fuck. So the nuclear winter associated with that probably blocked out the sun for a couple hundred thousand years and basically turned the uh, the world into this like fucking crazy ass ice age. So. And then uh, the dissipation. I mean, just think about the dust that went up to create that nuclear winter is pretty amazing. Yeah. And the crater is what country is this? It's in the Yucatan. Central America. Yeah. It's down in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Is and that Mexico? That tip? Yeah. Yeah, that's the Yucatan Peninsula. Okay, Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah. I'm going to put that on my travel bucket list. It's, uh, we just went there to I've, Tulum. I read a lot of reviews because we when we were in Belize, I thought about doing like a day trip out there. And the reviews all say like, it just looks, it's so fucking big. Like when you're there, you can't even tell. Yeah. So you just got to feel like you're excited about being somewhere. Um, and let this be a lesson for any future filmmakers out there. Should you have gigantic solids entering Earth's atmosphere address the meteorological impact? Like, in, I was kind oh, of it's thinking. It's not of, the aliens that threw you no, off. No. It's I, the lack of displacement no, of yeah, but, uh, it is. But look, that actually makes a really valid point. Like, uh, you know, if you think about like the atmosphere and the way it sits in terms of like trapping oxygen in it, when mm-hmm. you have that much air displacing. What happens? Does the Earth compress? Do the does it compress into the water? That's does it dissipate? Saying. The Avengers are huge fucking huge violation of of physics. Uh, damn it! I forget. <laughs> I forgot. What the space time continuum. About. God damn it! Uh, yeah. Oh, space time continuum for sure. No, they Spoiler figured alert. that one out in Endgame. Atmospheric. Uh, I'll think of some stupid term for next. That'll be next episode. People, cliffhanger. Let's just talk about this episode. Right. Well, uh, let's go back to this Endgame thing. Right. This is okay. something uh, that I was... Hang uh, on. Spoiler alert, people. If you haven't I seen it... I was watching it with uh, uh, the kids. We've been trying to work our way through Endgame. The question they hit me with, which I couldn't answer, was uh, what mutant power or what superpower does Black Widow have? Isn't she just a spy? Because she was getting like mm-hmm. her and beat so when up. We, when we were talking about a celebrity on the crew podcast, who to whoop ass with... In a street fight, remember that one? Mm-hmm. I was going to go Black Widow, but like I was worried that maybe she had superpowers, which would ultimately disqualify her. But upon further investigation, she was like a Russian operative that was mm-hmm. trained, but she doesn't actually have any superpowers. But, but neither yet does. she's near this Batman, the world's greatest detective. Yeah, but Batman gets his ass kicked constantly, and he has a suit. Black Widow doesn't have a suit, and he's, got, Widow, and he's got a whole bunch of cars and crazy Black shit. Black Widow dies. Well. Can't we take Batman a never dies. Like the silence. I mean, she sacrifices herself. You sell. You, you fucking that? asshole. You saw that as a sacrifice. Arrow tried to sacrifice himself. What's his name? <laughs> Arrow. 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 
is a hero. Hang on. And, that's a, and that is a show that is completely going to be so far ahead of its time that we're not even going to know it's a classic until like 100 years so from John now. So John would after like to amend who he would like to get a street fight with, and it would be with Arrow. Oh, I would fucking <laughs> beat Arrow's ass. I, every time I show... catch him first. Uh, dude, you know what? Uh, the... <laughs> Oh, Hawkeye. <sighs> Hawkeye, not Arrow. Yeah, Arrow, it's so bad. Who's Hawkeye? Uh, Jeremy Renner. Yeah, the Jeremy Arrow, Renner has his own social network. The, Arrow dude, is... The Arrow shows with, like, Flash, CW. like, the CW yeah. uh, superhero shows are, like, they're, like, just really not good. But, yeah, but I like them, but they're great. There's Yeah, they're flashy enough to keep you entertained. Yeah, no, I mean, the uh, the storylines keep building. Like, you're in season three, you got no idea what's going on. But they eventually hit a point where they're like, well, I feel like they, they're they like, the panel really responded well to this character. Let's make a huge storyline around them. So. Uh, dude, there was a weird one we watched recently uh, that has this, like, giant shark. And so every time he comes oh, on, I'm like, Arrow the jumped, Megalodon. Arrow jumped the shark? Uh, hey dude, oh, seriously, jumped the shark. But uh, I think the Arrow's going off air. They're done. Thank oh, God. Are you heartbroke? Seven, seven episodes. Back to now, that Friends collection. We're not into Arrow. We like uh, Flash. So that's when we watch on Sundays. Sunday morning, I let the kids watch Flash. Mm. I kind of dig Flash. I got to think of any of the superpowers I've seen. Flash is by far my favorite. The dude like can move so fast. like it, It's just crazy. Like bullets flying, he just kind of flicks them and they go away. I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. Which we don't have to get into the physics of that, but I'm a little concerned by it. Well, his ability to reverse the, the rotation of the, the er- disc. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. <laughs> uh, he ran so fast, he was able to time travel. Yeah, the, him and Superman. They it's, went the opposite way <laughs> of the Earth's rotation. Mm-hmm. There's okay. a lot of... There, I, I don't think that the people writing the show know much about physics or actually like what, what is possible. They're like, ah, oh, they're watching a superhero show. We'll make this shit up. It reminds me of when Tony Hawk, the original Tony Hawk game came out. It was like kind of revolutionary because it had realistic physics. And then you play it and you're like, what? <laughs> they're actually coming out with a documentary about the game and how it just revolutionized skateboarding and, mm-hmm. and changed the culture. And fucking music and video games. Yeah. It's a legit soundtrack. Anyways, enough about literally... Nothing. <laughs> Except for, so, hey, if, if so you what you're saying is that disruption... So what you're saying is that we're the Seinfeld of podcasts? I think it's so. It's a story about nothing. It could be. Like, uh, dude, that was my favorite. Just like talented. It's when they were pitching uh, the show. It's a show about nothing. Mm-hmm. Don't Google Superman, physics of Superman. Don't do it. Who, me? Yeah. All right. I will. All right, people. Today, Nate Brookerson who is Director of Strength and Conditioning at NC State. Ing. Olympics. Ing. Olympic Strength and Conditioning. Ing. Thank you. Uh, th- thank you. Ing. Ing. I didn't get an ing out of that guy. And we chat about coaching and hit, like, he's got a pretty well-traveled and he's a, past. And he's a thoughtful dude. He's yeah. obviously, like, thought through some stuff and um, has an opinion. And, and that drives the wheels off of his cars. Yeah, the Mazda M3. Mazda 3. 3. I don't even know Still what that is. It. I don't even know what, it, what a 3 is. It's the smallest... Uh, Mazda that you'd see out there. It's not quite a Miata, but it's just as cool. Oh. I'd fucking take a Miata. You, power athlete, fleet of cars, John. You have to get on a Miata kick. Uh, you don't remember the monster Miata where they were putting fucking big blocks uh, into, into Miatas? I believe it. I mean... They were awesome. The monster Miata was a fucking deal. You, get, can, you can shoehorn anything into that. I want to get like an electric motor Miata. 
I think personally for you, an RX-7 with a rotary motor would be badass. Mm, yes, that's 10-second car. So you got to remember that the rotary motor is uh, per cubic inch of displacement is like a one-to-one cubic inch of displacement to horsepower. So it's by far the, it's like a... Super. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's some astronomical deal. I love the engineering oh, of rotary motors. So I Googled Monster Miata, and this is probably the greatest website I've ever been to. Man engineering where too much horsepower is not enough. Welcome to the world of V8-powered Miatas. Here at Monster Miata, we think on the extreme end of things. Brute torque is the name of the game here, but not... But handling strength and reliability will not be compromised. Wasn't Brute Torque your nickname in high, uh, high school? Sure. <laughs> I thought that's who they referred to him when he worked at Balance. The goal of Monster Miata is to provide a fun yet civilized daily driving car that can outperform those cars on the track. We're proud to say that we achieved this. What did they put in it? Is it a small block or is it a big block? V8. Yeah, like what kind of V8, though? Are we talking on like a 454, 463? Are we talking about a 350 strokers? What are we talking about? Well, Tex is looking at an animated GIF. That says V8. <laughs> Go to on cylinder heads MonsterMiata.com. This show brought to you by MonsterMiata.com. Are they running them in the front? Are they running them in the front or the back? Are they going like rear engine? Are we going with the transaxle? Tex doesn't know any of that, and he, yes. he's trying to scroll, and the page isn't even moving. Okay, what does that say? Uh, oh, they put a Ford 302 in it? A Ford 302 V8 Miata kit. Ooh. It's, How much? It's a small motor. We'll take two. Ladies and gentlemen. No, 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 no. What's that one? That says an LS? Enough. Chief. Okay, GM, so we can, LS, put, an, with Monster we can put an LS in there? All right. It is time to get... To the rhythm of the rhyme oh, of the podcast, Nate Burkerson, Tex, are you ready? Listos. John, are you ready? Oh, yeah. Let's Set. do it. Go. <laughs> Go. Nate, okay, man, how about this? Let's start off. Um, our listeners know us because they suffer through our spiels, like the one that just happened uh, every week yep. for hours. Uh, I think suffering is pretty severe. Yeah, it must be. And that's what they have to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> it is to be. And the listener's like, yeah, John, you have no idea. Um, but Nate, why don't you give them a little intro, man? I mean, take as long as you want. We got yeah. 90 minutes, maybe two hours, maybe maybe six hours. Who knows? Yeah, uh, I know that, you know, strength conditioning coaches are, are famous for once we actually do get a chance to talk about ourselves that we can't stop. So uh, I'll, try, I'll try not to go too far off topic or meander too much, but um, name is Nate Brookerson. Currently, I'm an assistant athletic director uh, for strength and conditioning at North Carolina State University uh, going into year five. So I direct the department of six full-time strength coaches, uh, three registered dietitians, and a partridge in a pear tree. Um, but, you know, in my role specifically, it's, it's that kind of supervisory mentorship, you know, making sure that everything's just running smoothly. And then I work specifically with two very similar sports. So swimming and diving and women's basketball. Um, so, you know, the, the day to day is spending time with those teams, but at the same time, it's, you know, making sure again, everything's kind of running smoothly on, uh, on the other 22 sports that we have here at North Carolina state university. Um, prior to that, I was at university of Memphis for two years in a similar capacity. Um, and then before that I was at Eastern Washington university. So, 
Um, you know, when I talk about being in this industry and people complain to me about, you know, hey, I've had to move or I've had to do some other things that were kind of difficult. Well, my life was I was born in Washington. I went to grad school at University of Georgia. So got in a car about a week after I was married in a Mazda 3 with everything that we owned and drove across the country to Athens, Georgia. Again, being from the uh, Northwest, you know, very, very similar place um, to where we grew up. And then from University of Georgia, after a year, I went back to Eastern Washington, um, was able to get a job offer uh, there. So again, packed our stuff back up in the car, drove all the way back across the country to Cheney, Washington, spent five years there, worked my way into a director position, and then just decided one day that, you know, I didn't want to do football anymore. And I wanted to try to pivot and, and see what other opportunities were out there. So then, you know, decided to pick a nice close place to uh, Cheney, Washington in Memphis, Tennessee. And then at this time I had one son. So, you know, we packed everything up and squished him in a car and moved the family across the country to Memphis, Tennessee. Had my yeah, I hope. <laughs> I mean, we still got it. I drove that thing to work today. Oh. 90, 93 degrees and no air conditioning in it. But, you know, it's, I, it's all paid off. So we're good. Had my had my second son at University of Memphis, um, and then you know after two years was able to get this opportunity at North Carolina State. I was hired by a gentleman named Bob Alejo, who uh, if you're not fam familiar with him, he's he's kind of a godfather in this industry. He's you know 30 years plus worked in Major League Baseball. He was there with the Athletics when you know they were in their Moneyball era, and uh, he he has moved on to a high level AD role at Cal State Northridge. And I moved into kind of his old role and that's where we're at. So, you know, Raleigh, North Carolina now is home. I got two young boys, um, Brock and Blaze, seven or four years old. And then I've been married now for shoot 12 years um, and, and still trying to figure things out, still trying to grow and, and decide, you know, what I want to do for a living and, and who I want to be and all those things. So, um, yeah, that's that's how we got here. That's a wild ride, dude. Yeah, just dragging your family all over. I mean, I've, God's green earth. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a very, very loving wife, understanding wife, and I got kids that are just kind of like, "Yeah, we're moving again. All right, let's go." You know, nice, just man. just open open for adventure. So yeah, I, I'm hoping to stay here a while, but who who knows? As long as they have me, and as long as I'm doing a good job, hopefully I get to stay here for some time. But um yeah the track record has been you know i'll probably end up somewhere on the west coast again and back to the east coast and back to the west coast so just never never uh, prefer small moves i guess so so why why throw in the towel on on football that seems to be like the the apex of any aspiring collegiate strength yeah. coach is to to run the football program yeah no what um so, yeah, the, the whole thing with football was, you know, I, I played for a long time. So I started playing football when I was 12 years old. Um, you know, never, never thought that that was going to be the future. Um, played all the way through high school and really wanted to be a basketball player and actually got recruited to play college football off of a basketball game. So a gentleman named Bo Baldwin, who is now the offensive coordinator at University of Cal, um, actually came to one of my basketball games and, and saw me there and said, OK, I think. I think you're athletic enough to be a football player in the college level. So ended up deciding to go play college football. So did that for five years. Um, when I got done with that, the first kind of gig that I had was training 
collegiate athletes to go into, you know, the, you know, NFL or, or Canadian opportunities. And so, yeah, I thought that's what I was going to do. I thought football was the route. Um, I kept trying to play football as well. I played arena football for uh, another year of my life. Actually, strangely enough, made the team that I went to based on one of the athletes that was training saying, hey, I want you to come to the tryout and I want you to go through it with me. So showed up to the tryout, a gentleman named Jay White. He was from University of Nebraska. He went there as a safety. Um, we went to the Everett Hawks, which was an Arena 2 football team in Washington. Went to the tryout. Jay didn't make it, and I made it. Um, oh, so <laughs> stuck, stuck with football a little bit longer. And then when I, when I first got away from it, when I saw maybe what the other side could be, I went to the University of Georgia for grad school. So after Arena football was done, you know, I'm kind of searching for what I want to do. And my mentor at the time, uh, I was working at a place called Velocity, which, you know, people that listen to the station might, might know Velocity is it was, it got big in the mid two thousands as a franchise, you know, it was training eight to 18 year olds kind of deal. Uh, but my boss was a gentleman named Rick Hughley. So Rick was the head strength coach at university of Washington for about 18 years. He was there with Don James during that Rose bowl, you know, the, the 92 national championship. Um, and Rick, had the soft spot for collegiate athletics. And he's like, I think you would be a good college strength coach. And so his only advice was go, go to grad school, go do it for free, you know, find a good school and, uh, and just go volunteer and do that. So I showed up at university of Georgia thinking I was just going to walk in the weight room and they were going to say, yeah, yeah, you all, you played college football. You know, you got this background. Sure. You know, you can come in and volunteer. Didn't even send an email. I was that confident. Right. So I show up. And the gentleman who's there is a guy named Dave Van Hallinger. So Dave Van Hallinger was Bobby Bowden's strength coach at West Virginia back in like the late 70s. So he had gone with Mark Rick from, uh, from Florida State to University of Georgia. So a guy that's been in it for many, many years, right? And here's me walking in. I'm 24. Um, I'm saying, you know, hey, I want to be a football strength coach. Uh, I'd like to volunteer with you. You know, when do I start kind of deal? And I remember at the time, this was prior to you know, now they have a rule of five. You can only have five strength coaches with football. Um, we're looking around the room and he's like, everybody that has this red university of Georgia t-shirt is one of our volunteers. And there was more of those guys than there were athletes in the room. So basically he was saying like, I, I don't even have any space. Like I can't, I can't fit you in here. So oh, he, he, there's, there's no opportunities here. And so I remember thinking like, okay, well crap, you know, what the heck am I going to do now? And at that time, he was, he just told me, he's, he's like, we have an Olympic sports department. It's right across the street. There's some great coaches over there. You should go over there and, and see if they have some space for you. And I remember going over there and they had like no volunteers. Um, you know, all these great athletes at the time, this is 2008 at University of Georgia. So you had a baseball team that was runner up national champions. They had Gordon Beckham, who's been the major league baseball forever. Um, Josh Fields, who's still pitching the major league level. They had a, a national champion men's tennis team. It was their seventh year in a row, winning a national championship in gymnastics. So all these unbelievable athletes. Um, Mar um, Mar Marcia Maria Taylor for ESPN was there as a volleyball athlete. So this was like, you just walk into the door, you see world-class athletes everywhere. And I'm kind of like, I, I had no idea that this was even a thing. And they welcomed me with open arms. And that was where I, I felt like I got that that taste of, wow, this is, this is a really good opportunity. If I ever have this again at a, at a high enough level, I, I think I would like to do this, you know, not saying I didn't like football at the time. Um, but I thought it would be a good opportunity. So then I go, you know, back to Eastern I'm, I'm with 
everything but football to start. And then when I moved into the director position, I was football pretty much only. Um, did that for five years. And, you know, at the time, it was just I was thinking about family. I was thinking about what the future looked like. And I just saw a lot of my colleagues and friends and everybody that had been doing it just kind of starting to burn out. Um, everybody thought they were going to go make, you know, Chris Doyle money or um, Scott Cochran money. And it's just there's there's a handful of those jobs, right? And it, it just at the time didn't appeal to me as as this is what I want to do long term. You know, my my goal was never to work with football. That's not what I got into it to do. It was to work with high level athletes that were motivated um, in an environment that I wanted to be in, um, in a place I wanted to live and still have time um, to spend with my family to be able to go, you know, go to go to practices, um, spend time on the weekend, and not just have to have that constant pit in your stomach of like, hey, we don't win, you know, eight games and go to a bowl this year. We're we're out and you know, so getting out of it, 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 it was tough. I, you know, I left in Eastern Washington, you know, as an FCS program, but we had won a national championship in 2010. Um, a lot of kids are still playing the NFL, Canadian football, a lot of, a lot of good success there. Um, but it just, it felt like when this opportunity came up in Memphis, you know, I got a call from a gentleman named Rourke Cutchlow, who's now at University of Missouri. And he knew, you know, based on uh, interactions with other people in the field that, I had the potential to make maybe making a shift and he made the offer and it was just right, right time. And it's like, yeah, I want another challenge. And, you know, Memphis, Memphis was a challenge. You know, it was, it was a little bit of a culture shock for the family, but it was the best decision I made up to this point in my career because I, I was vulnerable, took a chance and, you know, it led me here. And, um, you know, Raleigh is an unbelievable place and this, this job's incredible. I love the athletes that I work with and the staff that we have. And again, I, I'm, I'm, really blessed to to be where I am and and not at all worried about whether it's with football or not. This is, this is great. So the connection that we made was at Jay DeMeo's The Seminar. So shout out to him, Richmond University. And you spoke on an interesting topic and you, again, you said it earlier, vo vulnerability. And you spoke about kind of taking the ego out of the equation when one of your athletes faced an injury echo. so i want to talk about this i want to talk about that perspective so i'm sure you dealt with athletes injuries athletic trainers physical therapists surgeries and all these previously so was this a a, a new position that you took when you had this athlete face this face this injury no i mean you know i, I really just spoke about that being kind of the, the position that we're all in you know we're we're all wherever you're at, at the collegiate level, you're going to be in a situation where you're not the be all end all, you know, you're, you're, you're not controlling everything about a rehab process. You're, you're not the, you know, the judge jury on every decision. Uh, ultimately you have to work in a collaborative environment and there's going to be times where you have opinions and you want to challenge somebody else's way of thinking or, or their perspective. And there is the challenge when, you know, you, you have so many people, so many cooks in the kitchen when you're all working towards one common goal, but you maybe have different opinions of how to get there. So that's where, you know, I would say it's kind of started at Memphis where it was more so about once an athlete got an injury, we started having more of these conversations be less about like what I did or what the trainer was going to do or what, uh, you know, sports medicine or, or physical therapist was going to do more so. It was like, what are our checks and balances or what are our audits along the way to be able to hold us accountable to something that we can all see and that we can all agree on is, is 
getting them closer to being able to get back to return to their sport. Um, so really that's what that conversation was, was, you know, the impetus of that, that, that speech was about, but that being said, you know, you, you, you have your criteria based approach and all these things that you're trying to accomplish, but it doesn't always mean that it's this linear, like, you know, everything was great and we did exactly what we expected. There was no setbacks, you know, it was right on the same timeline that we all thought it was going to happen. Um, that, that's just not the reality, but you know, in, in collegiate professional athletics, people never really talk about their failures. You know, it's, it's funny to me. Um, and you hear this more and more where it's just, it's like this omnipotence of a lot of professionals and, you know, strength and conditioning is, is definitely up there in this, in this type of thought process, basically like every decision that you make is the right one. Like I, I decided this, this was what we were going to do. And it was, it was successful. Like, we know that's not true. Like, you know, that you test sometimes you have what you consider responders and non responders. Like, we did something, these kids got better. We did something, these kids didn't get better. Like, but we, we tend to kind of push that narrative out of the out to the side and just be like, no, 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 like, we did it, we decided to do it, and the kids all got better for it. Um, I, I just I thought about when I go to these conferences, how nobody, again, wants to reveal hey, this didn't go exactly how we expected it to. This is what we assumed. This is what we were looking at. But the outcomes weren't quite there. And so I, I was just tired of waiting for somebody else to do that talk. So I said, I guess I need to be the one to start to do something like this. So, you know, that, that talk at Central Virginia, I thought, you know, for the most part, went pretty well. I know it's kind of like doom and gloom sometimes when you're, when you're talking about like, yeah, the, the outcomes weren't the greatest. And like, well, what now? Like, everything's fine, right? Like, everybody wants this clean narrative at the end. Like, everything worked out, and kumbaya, and, you know. But, like, again, that's not real life. Um, but hopefully that just gave some people in the crowd, maybe some younger professionals that that don't have this, again, this omnipotent type of perspective where they, they think everything's right. At least maybe it gave them some courage to go back and say, okay, I, I've had these type of situations. Like, how can I deal with them more effectively? How can I learn from them? How can I, you know? again, challenge my own perspective on things and help them grow as professionals. So if that's, if that's all it accomplished and, you know, nobody learned anything great. Um, but, but that was again, kind of what that, that talk was born out of. Do you think, uh, the biggest issue you see is that it's more copycats where, uh, everybody just wants to kind of carbon everybody else's program because yeah. they know they've had success. And if you start going out there and maybe have some original ideas and you put them into practice. And I mean, we've done this over the years where the ideas I've had, uh, didn't pan out the way that I thought they would. And they pivoted us yeah. in different directions. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, my experience yeah, it's is just people love to just carbon copy, you know, uh, programs or, uh, you know, philosophies because they know in the past this was successful and this is a safe way of doing it. Yeah, no question. That's a, yeah, that's that that's the perfect word, right? It's safe because you can go back and be like, okay, this is this is the genesis of this thought process. This coach did this, or this university was doing this. Um, yeah, and it's very safe. I mean, it's the same way that people refer refer back to literature, right? Like, I think that's that's a start. You have to you have to find things that have been done before, and somebody actually has some you know objective quality around it. Like it's been measured, it's been implemented, um, and then we have to have that same level of what we're doing. Like we're actually tracking it, monitoring it. Um, sorry, I lost you for a second. Um, but the idea still is every athlete is an end of one, right? So you're, you're taking, you know, you, you have this methodological thought process, this big picture of like what you want to do. Um, but there's going to be things that maybe you need to tweak and change for this particular instance, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm looking at 
bringing somebody back from an ACL. And maybe I think the gold standard is, you know, patella graft, but this person had a hamstring graft. Well, what does that change in terms of the, what the rehab is? If I'm only referring to somebody that did uh, an ACL return to play with somebody that had a patella graft versus hamstring, like, and I just copy that. I might miss a lot of things if I'm not measuring anything, if I'm not looking at what I think is important for that athlete. Um, but again, that takes that N of one approach. And that's hard, right? Because training healthy athletes, a lot of times, this is where when people talk about things being simple, I think that's where it's fairly simple, like do a general assessment, understand what their limitations are, address those things, um, and, and move forward with a program that has logic to it. There's progression, like there's there's simple theories that are out there that you can find, you know, and theory of progression and, and overload and all these things. But when you have an athlete that has an injury, that's that changes a lot of things, not only physically, but psychologically, right? Maybe this person had this, this is the first major injury that they've ever had. Um, and they're coming back and trying to deal with this and, you know, high expectations, pressure, whatever that is, timelines that they, they kind of make up in their own heads. Um, so that's, that's where the challenges come in. So, you know, in order to carbon copy something like that, you're not copying this to a, an athlete that, has maybe the same experience or surgical intervention or whatever as as one that you're trying to emulate. So I think injuries always have to have the end of one mentality. Yes, you want to you want to talk about when success is had and and what you looked at and maybe develop like a tighter um, tighter window of like these are the metrics that we think are important. This is what we're going to measure, and so you know we're not going to look at everything. These are the things that that made sense to us in the process. Um, but again, it's it's. There, there's just uniqueness in, in each athlete through that return to play process that you have to acknowledge. And just some notes from your talk, some of the tests that you did put into place simply as presented pain, output, readiness, and sensory systems. I don't know if a lot of coaches have that into play or they just have the, the old school like atrophy scale or just get back to the strength or power that you had represented before. But it yeah. was cool to introduce just these different things that you and your team were checking out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like you said, it's what does sport represent? Like it, you can create like okay, they they are stronger, more powerful, or or at what they used to be from a baseline perspective. But maybe you know, movement quality is still a limiting factor. Maybe you know, qualitatively, how they're getting into positions. Like uh, for example, we we have a girl that's coming back um, from an injury in women's basketball, and I'm looking at you know, uh, a change direction test, where not only did I look at what the output was, but I took a video of it. And then I did still shots of what each cut looked like. So as she's loading in the affected and unaffected legs, like how similar do those things look? Does she just load into the unaffected leg each time, regardless of where she's making a cut? Like, are these things in line with what we think her position postures should be like? So yeah, I mean, it's, there's so many layers that you can look at um the qualitative piece i think is is very important to sit down and look at that with coaches to get them to understand like okay as this person's coming you know out of this cut into this jump shot we have video of what they look like before because we have game video or practice video let's look at what they look like right now like and then we can go back at the the physical data that we have and say okay maybe the limiting factor is you know, this concentric strength piece or rate of force development or whatever it is. And we can train those things. Again, that's your experimental approach to the problem. Like, do those things? Did we make the change that we expected? And sometimes it's going to be exposure to specific motor patterns and skills too. Like, those things are important. Like, if, especially if you're coming back from an injury, it's almost like you're kind of refiguring out how to do things that before you didn't have to think about. Now you have almost this 
this idea of like, where do these skills start? Like you have to think about them more, uh, you know, in kind of the front of the brain before they're pushed in that posterior um, part of the brain where it becomes more just, uh, you know, autopilot. Um, and it's coming back to like front brain skills. Like I got to think about how to cut. I got to think about how I need a load in this jump shot. I need to think about how I'm going to move defensively. Like a lot of these kids don't, they haven't had to think about those things for years. So, you know, making sure that they become more fluid and, and um, less, less robotic and like programmed with movement quality as well. Like you have to, you have to find where they can be successful, find that edge and, and kind of push them over the edge every once in a while. Like the goal is not to, you know, make them fail every single day and just be like, I suck. You're not getting any better at this, but it's like, if you just keep doing like, okay, now you touch this cone and you're shuffling here and you shuffle there. Like you're not presenting any sort of, like you said, sensory element to it or, or more game like type of environments. Like that's not going to be what they're exposed to. Once, once the game starts, they're going to move how they're going to move. And if that's robotic, like it's probably not going to be efficient enough to actually stay up with the competition or it's, you know, it's going to open them up at risk for injury when they, when they, start getting fatigued and break down and go back to what they would do otherwise. And I'm, I'm sure now with the, the most recent like Golden State Warriors and the playoffs and the injuries that they faced, the coming back too early, we have this representation to tell a tale of, of waiting. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think patience within an injury is, is really hard for a lot of, you know, kind of the constituents involved, right? When you have, you have support staff, you have coaching staff, you have the athletes. Um, you know, there always is going to be that pressure that, uh, you know, I, I, you've heard this said before, but like this athlete at 80% is better than this athlete at 100%. Well, maybe so, but like that athlete at 80% is not as good as that athlete at 100%. And, you know, I've heard things, people say like, well, if this athlete's hurt, like they can still perform if it's this type of injury or, you know, it's almost like that subjective, like, well, when we feel like they're ready, you know, then we'll, you know, release them to competition. Like, I, I don't like to do those type of things based on feel. I think that's your secondary layer, right? And there's, there's psychological questionnaires, even in things like that, that you can give to athletes coming back from injury. But like the first layer is the objective piece, you know, comparing to what they had done previously, you know, looking at performance outputs or symmetry or whatever you want to look at. The second layer is that qualitative, like, how are they doing it? Um, and then the third layer is, you know, their level of preparation, their level of confidence, like those things need to be aligned before any of us even start having the conversation of like, okay, are they ready? And then there's even another layer of, okay, ready for what? Ready for practice, ready for, you know, high intensity, uncontrolled, chaotic movements, ready for game-like type of activities or an actual game. Like game being the first thing that somebody's exposed to is, is probably going to end in, in a lot of failure. Um, but again, I, I think sometimes it, it's, it depends on time of year. People are just like, even if it's a catastrophic injury, like, okay, now it's aligning with the playoffs or the playoffs, you know, it's, it's so important to get this person back. And like, yes, I acknowledge that, but it's like, okay, they have to pass these layers first before we get to that conversation of like, okay, we're going to take a little bit more risk because maybe that the timeline called for, you know, this person to be out longer, but they're hitting all these quantitative marks qualitatively they've done these things in practice and then the athlete feels ready. They're prepared. So, I mean, those things aligning. Yeah. We're, we're never going to build this certainty around injury where it's like, we know 100% for sure. This person's not going to get hurt or they're going to get hurt, but it's like, you're, you're playing with more certainty if, if those things are aligned. So Nate, you know, the return to play thing is 
as much, I guess, in, in art as it is anything. How has your philosophy developed or changed over time since you first got into this space, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I would say when I first got into it, it was just like you would just everything was so it, w- it would go back to like objectivity, right? Where it's like, okay, you know, some of this late stage stuff, as we're getting closer to the sport, I kind of, I'm going to let the sport kind of fill in the gaps. And early on, I'm just going to like, I'm going to look at movement quality. I'm going to look at pain. I'm going to look at like strength and maybe some power output speed type of stuff. Um, so early on, it was a lot of like, do a really good job with whatever phase that you're given. So like almost stay out of like the initial stage, like, okay, the injuries just happened. And like, I'm not going to do anything with this athlete until they're cleared to me because I was not really understanding how these efforts can kind of blend across uh, different domains. And so it was very compartmental, like, okay, my job is once they're cleared to me, I'm going to work movement quality, this, this, this. And then once I'm done with that, I just hand them over to the coaches. And now I think it's more so like we all just kind of bleed across these domains, right? Where it's, you hear this concept of stay in your lane. I don't believe in stay in your lane, but it's the idea of like, everybody is in a lane, but the lanes, you know, they don't have walls. Like we're, we're free to kind of change, uh, and, and move into other domains as long as we're respectful of, of what kind of the roles and responsibilities of, of everybody in on board are and knowing what those are, but ultimately like not just saying, okay, I'm, I'm, it's only time to do my job when like this person says it. And then it's my time to stop doing my job when the coach takes it over. Um, there's still, you know, lots of areas where it's, okay, once they get back in the court, like, are we seeing that everything that we put into practice is, is actually coming to fruition or where are the limitations and having those conversations with coaches and saying, okay, what are the appropriate drills to be exposing them to? What are, what are the requisite things, um, that this person needs that we've actually exposed them to? And what are the things that we need to continue to build in terms of competency or in terms of, um, yeah, you know, just, just volume. Right. Um, and even, even in this early stage return to play, like right after an injury's happened, like, what kind of things can I do aerobically? How can I train unaffected limbs? You know, even if it's a a lower body injury, how can I train the other limb? How can I train the rest of the body? You know, making sure that we're doing those things at a high level. And again, just not saying, well, we're going to, we're going to shut off fitness. We're not going to do anything because then it becomes very chunky where it's like this person's maybe not loaded at all. And then as soon as they get exposed to any training, it's going to be like, it's going to be, you know, knocking them back on their heels. And then it's going to be a really slow process of just getting them fit again, or getting them to move again, or just getting them exposed to training. Um, so again, finding ways to, to bleed across domains while still being respectful of people's spaces, but having hard conversations, challenging one another, like those, those things are important. Like any environment that I want to work in, like people value that, like it's, it's not questioning is asking questions, right? And I guess I wrote down a quote here, ask the questions you didn't know you needed. So you find the solutions you didn't know you needed. I probably wrote that down incorrectly, but something along those lines. Yeah, that makes no sense. (laughs) It's It's, it's I mean, you know, we are talking about strength coaches here, so technically it could make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I said that. Uh, I've never yeah. heard those words in my life. I don't know. You're not as strong as the weights you don't lift, but stronger than the weights that you did. You're like, what the fuck did that just mean? Oh, it makes sense. Yeah. Sounds like offensive line coaches. Only don't not never <laughs> lift a weight when you're not feeling it. Mm. Think about that. 
I'm trying. There it is. Doesn't compute. Yeah, it makes here. no sense. <laughs> Does I, not compute. I, I always feel like uh, uh, Will Ferrell when he's like 60% of the time it works every time. He's like, that makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had a challenging conversation or been a part of an athlete's decision to retire at 20, 21, 22? Yeah. Um, you know, off, off the top of my head, I had, you know, this, this is, this was one several years ago when I was at Eastern. Um, and th this was just like a very unique case that an athlete that had come in, he was a walk on that had had an Achilles tear in high school. Um, and then he got to Eastern and I think he came out for spring ball and tore his Achilles, but he had done really well prior to, um, and so he had been invited to come back on the roster. Well, once he tore his Achilles, it was, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going to help you through this rehab process. And I mean, it was, it was a 10 month deal. And I remember him coming back the next year, he, you know, he'd come back to the next spring ball had done really well. And it basically earned himself a spot on the, the, the main roster, right? Like he was going to, he was going to be a traveler, you know, he's going to be like a, a three deep type of kid, a special teams kid. Um, and then I think it was, I want to say, you know, towards the end of the season, just, you know, gone through the exact same thing. Another Achilles tear, his third Achilles tear, uh, same leg. Yeah. Oh, third Jesus. Achilles tear, same leg. And I remember, you know, it, it was a kid that he did everything was asked of him and, and we were very stringent and process around, you know, what, what we needed to do to get him healthy. And again, it was a kid that was just bought in very confident and, uh, and his ability to go out and still do the things at a high level. And I mean, again, he showed that he could even in the face of the, you know, two Achilles tears. Once he had that third one, uh, I remember, you know, sitting him down in my office and just saying like, okay, like, what do you want to do? I'm, I'm here to help you. If you want to go back through it again, like I know you're at the point of, you know, making a team. And that was, that was your one goal was get on the roster and you, you could probably be somebody that would have, would have helped us. And I mean, he was playing that year and he's just like, I, I don't think I can go through it again. Um, and, and that was, that was the first time. I, I mean, since then I've had some other different cases, but that was the one that stood out because, you know, you just see, I, I wasn't part of the first one, saw the second one, saw everything that he went through. And it was just this, this ultimate success story of like, you know, perseverance and making the team and doing all the things that he had hoped to do, hoped to accomplish. And then going down again in that season, um, just like that one, really, that one really punches you in the gut actually named an award after the kid, um, at Eastern Washington. It was one of our strength and conditioning awards after that. Um, but I, yeah, it's tough. I mean, people see injury and they, they, they don't really realize like how much goes into coming back from that. Not only because we're not talking about, this is not general population where you're just going back to like, Hey, I just need to be able to walk around or, you know, maybe do some kind of athletic things we're talking about you have to come back from something that's that significant to go try to, you know, do things that are the highest of high levels in regards to physical outputs. Um, and when you go through that rehab process and it's so slow and it's so hard and it's daily and it's grind it's twice a day. And then at the end of it, you, you know, you're, you're going right back through it again. Um, you know, that really does weigh on them psychologically so you know my thing is just I'm always there I try to be as level as I can with with kids going through injuries and just be supportive of them and you know just always speak back towards like this is where we need to get to again these are things that we need to make a priority of and just take it a day at a time but you know again there's times where I can't have empathy um like ACL tears for one I've never had one 
you know, I've had dislocated shoulder on my right arm several times. And then I had labral surgery in high school and then a broken hand in college. And those were kind of like the two significant injuries I went through. But I remember sitting in a room in college with 10 guys that I had come in with and seven had torn their ACLs. One guy had torn both and he ended up with a third ACL tear, one of the best wide receivers I've ever played with. Um, and I didn't know what that was like to go through and now living it with, with different kids at this level, you know, it really, it really does weigh on you. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. So when it, when the time comes and they have to hang it up and it's not on their own terms, yeah, that's, it's, it's a difficult thing, but you know, it's unfortunately that's, I was, I was literally having this conversation with an athlete the other day. It's like injuries are non-discriminatory. Um, they're, they're inevitable. They're going to happen. It's just a matter of like, how do we respond to them? Um, how do we come back and, and how do we stay mentally and physically as resilient as possible? With Andrew Luck retiring recently, I know it's a hot topic. And um, did, did you have an opinion on that or you just kind of see his take of um, he's looking towards the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely like on the I'm in the camp of like nobody knows what he's going through. Um, you know, I, I remember watching him play in college and be just being super impressed with like his physical profile and how he played. And he was just, you know, he just seemed like a guy that was going to take hits and um, do everything that he could to help his team win. And I'm sure the, the amount of preparation that he put in every year. And again, you think back like this is not just, you know. NFL all the, all the way back, back to college, high school, however long he's played, all the time that he's put in. And, you you know, you develop this love of the game and, and you kind of go through these routines and you have this expectation of like, this is how your body's going to hold up. And when those things start going south and you're not able to do the things that you need to do and you're not able to play the way that you want to play and it, 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 it just kind of keeps compounding on itself. I mean, missing an entire season and then having something that's nagging the next year. I mean, the guy is to me was an absolute warrior. So um, if he felt that strongly about like, this is just my time, like at the end of the day, this is a game and it's his body and it's his, his life. Um, you know, I, I, I would full, fully support anybody in that type of uh, situation because again, you, you have no idea what they go through. No clue. You, you know, the, the, the armchair quarterbacks in at home have no idea what it's like to get sacked by a 300 pound plus dude or like, have no offensive line in front of you for several several years when the expectations are like you're the franchise you know um so again i, I I'm, I'm supportive of people like that and, and what their decisions are you got a view on that retirement uh i think um every player has this like weird writing on the wall and i think very few people get to retire when they want to I mean, I think the only guy that I've ever met that actually got to walk away when he wanted to was Tony Gonzalez, and I was at his Hall of Fame induction speech. So, yeah. um, you know, I know for me, uh, I still thought I had good football left in me, and it just came down to something where no longer does your body allow you to do the job at the level at which you want to. And even though there's always this, like, little spot in the back of your mind where you think, like, man, maybe if I could just, like, steal for a year and just be, like, a good veteran guy to help, like, the young guys along and just be that good dude in the locker room. And then you're like, ah, it wouldn't make me happy either because then I'd be a fucking fraud like all those old dudes. I used to call frauds when I was a young guy. And uh, I used to come in and some of the old guys, I used to pull my T-shirt over my face like this and go, give me the money. Give me the money. Be like, you fucking thieves. Stealing from the team, not fucking playing. And um, yeah, I was an asshole. Um, But uh, I think a guy like Andrew Luck, one, being a pretty sharp dude, Stanford guy. 
Uh, yeah, pretty smart, um, you know, and uh, shame on the Colts for not bringing in any fucking quality offensive lineman to guard that dude. Uh, the hits that guy took, man, I remember seeing him in his first couple of years. It reminded me of the hits that uh, Troy Aikman took. Remember yep. when uh, when Troy Aikman came in in Dallas? These guys were just killing Aikman. Every time I see Aikman up there, like, announcing, I always think, like, he's got to be fucked up just from those hits. Uh, yeah. He's also playing in the Dome. I mean, dude, to play against the Colts in that Dome, it's loud. So uh, that turf is hard. Um it's just a weird thing, man, to like to play at a high level. And, uh, you know, this kind of plays in perfectly with, uh, you know, we had Dr. Bueller on the podcast, um, something, the effect of like, you've played your whole life. You've done this job. You've played at the highest level. Your body has performed when you've needed it to at like the pinnacle at the fastest and just being able to like do all these things. And then all of a sudden not be able to do it. It's like driving your car and like, it doesn't turn right or the tires are funky and you're driving it and you're like, I don't know what's fucking wrong. And you can relate to this. You're like, uh, something's wrong with my truck. I don't know what it is. It's, it's exact same thing. You like the things that you used to be able to do easily, no longer you can do. And you don't Mm -hmm. understand why. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's compounded. I mean, when you were sitting there talking about sitting in a room with 10 guys and seven of them had ACL tears, uh, I saw a correlation between big hits where guys would take big, uh, big impacts to the brain, have some form of concussion, some big hit. And then usually opposite side, if it was on the left or the right, usually the opposite side, they would end up having either some form of ankle or a torn ACL. And it was like a one-to-one, a dude would get knocked out or take a big hit. And then like within a couple of weeks, he'd usually tear an ACL or fuck himself up. Yeah. And that's that like, you know, cognitive neuro uh, deal with uh, Dr. Bueller was talking about. So when I saw Andrew Luck and like I could see the pain in him of like this confusion and um, the problem comes down to is conventional medicine fails athletes. It always does because there's limitations, uh, you know, and you have these doctors and I'm sure you deal with this with your uh, with your ankle tapers, your ATCs and your doctors and all the other orthos who uh think they know and they don't fucking know they've never lifted a weight they've never played very few of them have and they make these observations based off of what they think and a lot of times it's fucking nonsense you know they come in and evaluate injuries oh this guy i mean i i uh, these guys have heard me say it i I broke my fibula clean in half um the doctor came in and said you don't need that bone to play football it's a non-weight-bearing bone, only 12% yeah. of your weight. So you don't need that bone. I'm like, Doc, every time yeah. I take a step, I can feel this crunch. And they're like, yeah, but you don't need that bone to play football. I'm like, what about the uh, Hippocratic Oath, do no harm? And, um, yeah. you know, it's... it's. Uh, so what happened after that? They cast me five days and I played three weeks later. Mm. So I played... Sounds se- like they were right. Played 17 weeks with a broken leg. Absolutely. These guys are sharp. No, they're fucking assholes. (laughs) Um, And then what's crazy is it was uh, my leg was in such spasm. I ended up rupturing my calf. And you know when you guys fucking rip on me for my uh, my, my calf? Ruptured calf. Big spoon, little dish. Yeah, Indianapolis Colts fucking ruptured. Um, but so the long story is, is that they uh, these doctors speak in such absolutes. Oh, you should be fine in this. And they're looking at it from an MRI. And they don't realize that there's a whole different system to this thing. I mean, that kid going out there and like... A little piece of me died when he told me he tore the same Achilles. And I like, Fuck, and yeah. as I'm going through the mechanism, I'm thinking like, okay, was the surgery fucked up? Did they, did, uh, was the gra- or the, the way they reattached it, was it too tight? Did he not have full range of motion? Did they yeah. push him back too soon? Like, why didn't it heal? Normally when you have that form of like, um, tendon rupture when they stitch it back. And I only know this cause I ruptured my patellar tendon, the tendon, yeah. the scar tissue creates this mass that actually makes it stronger. So then you're thinking like, why did he rupture it a second and a third time? I mean, the second time is tough. The third time you'd be like, ah, you know what? The anchor points are probably a lot shorter cause they have to resect and resect. 
yeah. and then when you know by the time he got to the um the third time i mean shit it was probably so short he probably had like no dorsiflexion no, and so yeah, yeah that was that was always almost impossible to get back on this kid yeah so then it's so tight that he puts him into that same situation. And then you have to also think that there's all this like neurological guarding where, you know, the body fucking knows something's fucked up and it could be something from like some other injury. I mean, there's so many cascading effects and, uh, like a guy like Andrew Luck to be able to play at that level and to be that good and to have that much talent and take those hits. And then all of a sudden just stand up there and be like, I can't do it. Like thing, like the, the words coming out of his mouth, I was like, holy shit, man, I've been there. Like that was, that, that was me where, you know, I had teams calling and like, Hey, we want you to come try out. And I was like, I don't think I could do what I used to a year ago. Like it just yeah. doesn't like, it, it was like my superpowers had left me. And, uh, I was actually going and seeing Dr. Bueller. And I remember walking out of Bueller's office and I've, I've told you guys the story. I, it was snowing and I took a step and I jumped up on the hood of the car. And I thought, fuck, I could go back and play in the NFL. And I stepped down and I got in the car and just drove to the airport and went home. And my wife was like, what do you think? I'm like, I could go play today. No problem. She's like, it was that it was that uh, monumental. I'm like, yeah, unbelievable. But um, they stole 10 years from me. I'm not giving them anymore. And I think that's the way he probably looked at it. Like something's wrong. I don't know how to fix it. If I go in there, it's going to be disgenuous. I'm not going to play at the same level at which I was. And uh, that's a hard thing, too, when you start thinking about legacy. You want to be remembered for the player that you were, not like the shitty player you evolve, you know, you turn in, yeah, yeah. You, you know, like, Hey, Hey, that guy had so much future. He was so good. Um, you know, he's a bust now, which is so quick, man. People hand that shit out to people all the time. And it's just like, uh, as having done the job and hearing the callousness of fans and armchair quarterbacks and the way people act like, um, fucking stabs me in the heart. I, I, I hear people say like the, uh, you know, and it's just part of our culture where they think like, Oh, you know, I, I bought my ticket. I got my Jersey. Fuck this guy. And you're like, well, you know what? Like this is, this is still a kid who fucking loved to play football and this is his dream. And he yeah. no longer can do the dream at which he wants to. And then to hear like fucking like the, them boo that dude, I was, um, I'll tell you this. I will root against the fucking Colts for their fans for the rest of my life for that shit. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. It, it's, it's why, like, I mean, shit, uh, you guys have heard me at TV timeouts. We would stand there and we would watch the Philly fans just beat the dog shit out of each other. They would get hammered and just punch each other in the face. And we'd watch these epic fights. And I remember thinking, like, a lot of times they were fighting other Philly fans. And I remember just thinking, like, these are our guys. You know, these are the guys yep. that are going to fucking throw cheesesteaks at us if we lose. I mean, it's just, yeah. It. Uh, but I'm stoked that, um, that he had the courage to like step up and retire opposed from just fucking ride it out and just fade off and then be like, ah, I just never came back. The guy, you know, just or get totally yeah. fucked up or, or go out there and say, Hey, you know what? They paid me money. They expect me to do this job. And I have this loyalty to the fans and the team and this other stuff. And then go out there and just get absolutely fucking annihilated. Yeah. Which that's, you know, so I'll get off my soapbox. No, no, no. I'm, I think obviously you have a tremendous perspective about that. It's, uh, you know, one of my one of my idols growing up was Barry Sanders, and I remember when he what was thirty when he had, he got done playing, um, and everybody was like, "Why he's still in his prime?" And you know, obviously there was there was things that were going on there behind the scenes in terms of contract and just, oh, yeah. you know disillusion and all that. But that being said, it's like, why is it that as a fan that we expect that the players should only walk away when, like you said, they basically tanked and their career is. Like they have no legacy. They're a shell of their former self or they've experienced like a catastrophic injury and there's no way they could come back. Right. Like 
that's that's when we think that these people should be like, yeah, all right, now this is this is when I want to start my retirement the rest of my life. Like, I, I have an injury that's going to affect me forever, or you know, I, I like you said, are a shell of my former self, and everybody's going to remember me as a, a bust or you know, not as good as I, I once was. I, it, it's 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 pretty unfair that we have that mentality as as fans. Like that's what the expectation is. But then like it's the the irony or whatever you want to say it is. Like uh, you know, I think about you know, in in like baseball, where uh, who was a, the first baseman for the Phillies that recently retired, Ryan Howard, where like by the end of his career, he's hit like one sixty and has no power or anything like that. And people are like, oh, he should have got out of it earlier. It's like. It's, yeah, no, yeah. It, man, it, it, it's always mind. easy to second guess and make these decisions after the fact. You know, the, the the difference with baseball is I think in baseball, guys realize like, you know, they just don't have the speed or they can't do it anymore. In football, you don't realize it until you like all of a sudden go out and take one big hit or something happens. I mean, for me, uh, I chipped off a piece of bone in the last preseason game of my 10th year. And, uh, you know, and then through you know, some just interesting stuff end up being like going to get knee surgery and then trying to come back. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, something that should have taken me a couple weeks, a couple months to recover from all of a sudden, like six, nine months later, like my knee still swells. I can't run like I would run and my knee would swell for two or three days. And it's all of a sudden, like you just, you just rehabbing back. The timeline doesn't compute anymore. I wasn't ready to go do the job with like the metrics and all the things that I'd put together. And then you just don't know why. And at that point, you got to figure out like, hey, man, is it uh, is it worth doing this or do I have to go find? And I think the problem comes down to um, and I've said it like you go talk to this conventional doctors and um, it just reminds me of like, you know, like one medicine man has some has some voodoo and another one has another. And you go to that one guy and he just, you know, like I remember going and seeing a doctor and him being like, oh, your knee's a mess. I would just do a knee replacement. And I'm like, what if I don't want to do a knee replacement? I can't help you. And I remember just going to different people and then I went to, you know, this guy and you start kind of going on this like little vision quest of like finding the right people and you end up finding somebody that fixes you. And now like, you know, and I just remember thinking like if you surround yourself in the same echo chamber of individuals and in professional sports, you're either going to end up with a pill or a surgery. That's all they got. And, uh, you know, like I was, I went and saw, uh, you know, this PT Cairo today and we, he was, um, I hurt my neck in, uh, I think it was in the preseason against the Rams and I herniated a disc in my neck and like, I couldn't look around and I wasn't going to play the first week. And this old time doc that we had, who was, uh, not only an old time doc, but he also had racehorses and he used to do manipulations and he was an osteopath and used to work on racehorses came in and he fucking like did this karate chop thing on my neck, popped the fucking disc back in and I was fine. And like, like, like the doctor was like, we don't know what to do. We're going to inject it. Let's do this and this and this. And he's like, I'll fix it. And he fucking did this little like uh, karate, like kind of like, and all of a sudden I like popped in and I was like, Oh, I'm good. And went out and played. Dr. Ralph Macchio. Oh, it was, uh, it was the craziest thing. And like, I remember, uh, you know, he was like, Oh, there's going to be some swelling, put a little DMSO on my neck. And you would have thought he was fucking making fire for cavemen showing these guys some, like, like just some DMSO and they would, you know, these trainers had never seen it. And I'm like, how the fuck, like, like, what do you think existed before this year? And it just, to me, man, it just meant like, um, if you listen to conventional wisdom, sometimes conventional wisdom will, you know, Hey, this is the end, you know, and I'm sure luck went to all these different doctors and said, Hey, uh, 
you know, hey, the, you know, this, and, you know, and they, they gave him everything. It just reminds me of, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant, who, you know, had such bad tendonitis in his knees. I mean, it was basically arthritic changes, you know, all these problems and couldn't do anything. Goes over to Germany, gets hooked up with the ACS stuff with those guys at Regenix, goes over there, and whatever happens, I don't know. There was a lot of voodoo in that thing. I know one of the doctors that went with him who's since told me the stories. But shit, Kobe comes back and plays another 10 years and never had any issues. I mean, they were talking about he was done. His, uh, I mean, the, the only other b- bigger upset that was LeBron James' hairline. Remember LeBron? I mean, his hairline was back here in the next year. Looked perfect. I mean, like, so a lot of these issues, man, like, um, you go to the doctors, they give you some conventional, and the really sharp people, the, you know, and I'll tell you this, um, I stand on this 100% that if Andrew Luck had met Dr. Bueller, he wouldn't have had to retire. So, anybody, you know, I mean. Well, how long was he playing? Luck only played seven years. Hmm. Like that's we have a doctor in um, in Utah uh, who's really interesting guy. We had him on the podcast. Guy named Craig Bueller Amit, and uh, he does some stuff with like a ton of Olympic athletes. I met him through Tom Inkadon, who met him through uh, um, what's his name uh, Romanowski. And he was the the trainer that worked with John Stockton and Carl Malone and allowed those guys to play 20-plus years through his uh, what he does. And for people that, like, you know, you know, medicine's failed on this, I mean, he seems to be able to work that magic, and he did for me. And uh, so, like, the thing comes down to, I think, as an athlete, if the only resource you have is, like, hey, you know, conventional, I just think that you get to the point where it just kind of runs out and you got to go out and find them. I'm sure for you, I mean, the analogy I always give people is uh, when I came to the Eagles, um, Mike Wolf and Tom Canavy were strength coaches. They were Penn state guys and they were all hammer strength hit one set to failure. And I remember jumping in, it was like one, two or three, you just run the row. And I got done with one and I was like, can I go again? And I would just do the row. I'd be like, Hey, I got 45 minutes. I want to do this as many times as I can. And they were like, yeah, fucking do it. And I just remember thinking like, this is the program they had. This is the philosophy they did. And then I remember at the end of the season, they were like, hey, when are you going to come back for off season? I was like, I'm not. I'm going to go do my own training because if I do this shit, I'm going to be out of the fucking league. And, and it, it like, you know, and this was, but that's what they did. That's what the reduced injuries. Nobody got hurt. You're in the NFL. So like everything fucking works. You can have dude do one set to failure. He's probably going to get bigger and stronger. A dude over there could fucking play the snare drum for an hour and probably get bigger and stronger. You know, so like when you were laughing about going and working with other athletes, it's kind of like the dogma of professional sports and college sports is you bring, you know, these strength coaches in and, you know, I'm going to work with Alabama. We're going to make them great. I'm like, you get the best fucking recruits. It's like here at Texas. The fact that Texas doesn't win every game blows my mind with the quality of uh, recruits they bring in. But the problem is there's this, uh, you know, chip on the shoulder like we're Texas. People should just roll over and they go in there and get their fucking asses beat. And it just becomes this really weird thing, man. That's why Bring McConaughey and coaching staff. But I mean, it, and that's why when you see wrong? in the NFL, like the guys, like it blows my mind. You'll get these guys from little schools will come in and fucking go to the Hall of Fame. Ty Law. I mean, shit, all these guys do this because it comes down to like how hard you want to work, perseverance. Can you do this job in and out, in and out? So how much time you have left to do that job, too? Like you said, how 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 much was taken away from you before you even got to the uh, NFL? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just the injuries that work up. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, yeah. Ty Law, did he play for the Rams? Uh, Patriots, and then also played with me at the Chiefs. Maybe at one point, let me check. Because uh, I want to say I was... The year was 1992. The Summers family took a... No, Ty Law ain't that old. Who's... 
who's the other law? I think he has a brother. Look it up, McQuoken. Talking about Kevin Green. We'll just go with this real quick. 1992, and the Summers family went on a scuba diving trip to a Club Med resort in St. Lucia. And one of the activities they had was like a flag football game with NFL guys and who uh, uh, Bob Golick was there. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because that was the the Golick brother on Saved by the Bell, right? Uh, Well, there was Bob and then there was uh, Mike Golick. Mike's the one who has a radio show. Yeah, so it's Bob Bob Golick, for sure. Who played for the Raiders, who was a fucking madman. And I want to say it was tight. Like, there was, like, five dudes there, like, knowing you now. <laughs> and, like, what those fucking... Those dudes probably ravaged that Club Med resort. Oh, yeah. They, I mean? they were there drinking, eating, oh, everything. Yeah. And uh, But it was, like... A, those guys were, like, split half-half, and they did this, like, fun... For fun flag football game. It, I had been playing football for, like, three years. And uh, fucking... Ty Law ran a slant across the fucking middle. I was playing inside, and he fucking pummeled me. <laughs> <laughs> and I went down. He, like, just Charlie horsed me and just plowed me. Like, and he felt awful. Like, you know, he didn't fucking know. He was just running a slant probably at half speed, which is 100 well, Ty, miles an hour. Ty Law was a DB. Yeah, but they were on both sides. Uh, you know what I mean? So, like, uh, there was Bob Golick's team, and I want to say, I fucking, I, it might not be Ty Law, but. ninety-five. Was his rookie year yeah, with yeah. the Patriots? Okay, yeah, so yeah. then it, it's got to be a different. Yeah, because he came. I want to like oh six oh seven. Yeah, he was at the Chiefs. Yeah, no, I, I played with this Ty. Dude played on the Rams. I definitely have it mixed up. But poor Ty Law, if you hear this, <laughs> what like you'll ever hear? Oh, sorry for the uh, friend of the show. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, I, got I, pummeled, I, and then they I gave like us Ty. like a free dinner and everything because it was a big deal. Because they poor pummeled you. Got, yeah, poor kid was like down and. KO'd. Well, at least you didn't fucking spill, you know, as he's coming across the middle, fucking light up his knee and blow out his oh, fucking yeah. knee. Like, and wouldn't a that be something if he like... Tw- <laughs> you're like, you're like 12 years old and you put your fucking head inside and just blow his fucking knee out uh, as he's running the crowd like a slant? They shouldn't have had kids playing that flag football game. What, uh, Things they would never do today. Oh, being yeah. like a bunch of kids playing flag football against these NFL yeah, dudes my folks who are like, in Club Med whatever, having a bunch of drinks yeah. and they were like, hey, Bob Gold looks like, hey, I'm going to throw a fucking shiver on this kid's fucking face. <laughs> I'm going to get more intel on this. <laughs> and so this story gets more formalized Dude, and accurate. I, I have a funny Bob uh, Golick story. So Chris Shell, when I was growing up, um, Art Shell was uh, head coach for the Raiders. Chris Shell was his son who, uh, who played on my high school football team. And I remember we got to go to one of the games when his dad was head coach and we were in the locker room and fucking Bob Golick uh, was by far the friendliest dude that we had met. And uh, he was fucking kind of a madman, had like long hair. He was a big yeah, fucking yeah, bearded, dude. Yeah. Yeah, he was a he was a gruesome looking dude. He was super nice. Yeah, yeah, and his brother is just kind of fattening on the radio. Uh, Mike and Mike in the morning. Oh, people love him. I'm out. Yeah, I'm not, not a fan. Where are we at, McQuilkin? Too safe. Um, let, let's stick with. I'd like to get into managing personalities, and I guess this ties into our conversation a little bit with the NFL. But Nate, I know you're. We're once a wide receiver. I don't know about a diva wide receiver, but <laughs> how is it managing the different personalities that you face on your teams with that one objective of, of winning and being a successful unit, but all these different personalities, especially does, does one dominating personality pull away? Are there conflicts amongst the team members? How do you go about managing and almost molding the team through strength training and shared suffering and all that good stuff that we love about strength and conditioning? 
Yes. I mean, that's a good question, right? Cause I work with both men and women. Uh, and so people ask, you know, what's, what's different. Um, I'd say on the men's side, it's typically like the, the motivation to like, just want to be in the weight room and, and want to be around like the, the other bros in the team, like just, just get, I, I had a freshman swimmer come in the other day and he showed me like the Domizetti bro science, like the eight, there are seven stages of like, <laughs> basically like, you know, how they were going to evolve. And he's like, we're the ooze right now, but we're working on being the super beast. And, uh, you know, he was talking about, yeah, we caught our first pump today. And like, I think it's just more of the culture of like, they, they've, you know, it, like that's what they would do otherwise. Right. Like they'd go to the gym and, and maybe do different exercises, but that's, they enjoy being there. So personality wise, like, yeah, you, you, you got some different, uh, different guys in the team, but for the most part, from a strength conditioning perspective, I think most of them, like they just become second nature. They want to be there on the woman's side. Uh, there's, there's some just different perspectives. Some of them are, are pretty intrinsically motivated and they're like, okay, this is for my sport. Um, and, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do. You have some that are more extrinsically motivated and it's going to be like, all right, playing time is what matters to me. So if my coach is saying I need to be here, I'm going to do it. Then you have others that, you know, have opinions of like, if, if I change too much, my body's going to change too much. I'm not going to be as effective. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe some of these things, like, I feel like, our, our football lifts or like, this is not what, you know, a swimmer does or what a women's basketball player does. So a lot of times with them, is, you know, you talk about this term education, but like education for them is just saying like, okay, at the end of the day, what, what my job is to do is to help you be successful in your sport. I'm not here to make you a power lifter, Olympic lifter, but we're going to use tools that are necessary in order to impact strength or power or resiliency. And it might seem a little bit goofy, but ultimately like, this is why we're doing it. Um, I think that's, that's where you start. If it becomes like, it's still defined off of that. Then I, I think a lot of times you just, you have to be really honest and forthright with people. Like, I, I think they respect that a lot more than kind of dancing around it. Like, Hey, this is what the expectation is. And like, you're going to get on board or else it's going to be a conversation that's at a higher level where it's going to go up to your coaching staff. And then it's going to be about, you know, taking things away that you're here to do, which would be playing time and, and, you know, things of that nature. Cause at the end of the day, like if I'm taking away strength and conditioning for some of these kids, you'd be like, all right, sweet. Like, I don't have to do this anymore. Uh, so you, you have to find kind of what their, what their whys are, what make them tick. Um, and and you're, you're typically able to figure that out pretty quickly with most kids. And, you know, there is kind of this social savvy that you have to have, but ultimately, you know, the expectations are the expectations. Like I, I try not to say I'm going to have different standards for you because you really love this versus you don't think this is important. Like the standards are the standards and I'm going to hold you to those. And again, be honest when, when you're not meeting what the expectations are, but I also deal with college kids. I'm not dealing with, I'm not dealing with pro athletes where, you know, I'm making a fraction of what they are and, and they're going to maybe make more of the call on, on what they think is important or they're spending more time in the off season with their own personal trainers. Or, you know, I've even heard stories. I had a, uh, again, the guy was telling you about Rob or, uh, uh, Rick Hughley was telling me a story about a gentleman named Robin pound who Robin was a head basketball strength coach at Cal back in the day. And I think he was with the Phoenix suns and somehow, I mean, Robin's, I think probably in his sixties or maybe seventies now. Uh, he got hooked up with Kyrie Irving and at one point he was Kyrie Irving's personal guy. So wherever Kyrie was, I think this is when he was with Cleveland, like he, Kyrie wasn't training with the trainer, like the strength and conditioning coach that was there. He was training with Robin pound. So it's like, 
again, you know, how, how you deal with those, those personalities. Like I'm not at that level. I, I wouldn't have the slightest clue. I would, I would try to, again, have a similar mindset of what I had now. I don't know if it would be as effective, probably not. Um, but you know, there's a reason why I've, I've not ventured into the pro game. How about managing coaches? So any guidance for strength coaches out there or business owners that need to navigate the sport coach to try to get some more clientele, whether it's high school or maybe even some smaller college towns to help them just connect with the sport coach and get buy-in for a type of training that's performance versus, I don't know, all the nonsense that we see forced on different coaches. I start with every, every sport coach that I work with is just trying to meet them at a human level, right? Like, you know, their, their entire lives are, are really centered around sport. That's all the conversation. That's all anybody wants to talk to them about. So I try to meet them on as much of a human level at, to start with, at least trying to build somewhat of a relationship that, you know, uh, for example, I'm actually in my, uh, women's basketball coach's office right now. So he's out of town recruiting. Um, but he's a huge Cowboys fan. So I know when I get around him, if I, if I'm mentioning things about the Cowboys or we're talking about the Rangers, I mean, grew up in Dallas. Um, typically like those are things he's going to like speak fondly on and it's going to open up a little bit more, uh, juice for me to have conversations about stuff that maybe he doesn't want to talk so much about. And then, you know, I, I, I ask him what he thinks is important about, you know, what his team needs to be able to do to be successful. And then what he, what he thinks my role needs to be. And then as long as, we're viewing those things pretty similarly. Like I, I'll, I'll be fairly cordial. If he thinks it, it's something completely different then I, again, try to use that term education. And, and so I'll invite him into the weight room. I invite him around training sessions, you know, talk to him a lot. It's just that consistent exposure. And I think, I think a lot of people, the tendency is in this industry is when things get uncomfortable and, you know, somebody thinks you're not doing a good job, like you just avoid it, you know, like, I don't want to talk to them. Oh, they don't know what they're talking about. I think that's, that is the opposite. Like you got to run towards those situations and you, you almost have to, you know, over communicate or, or spend more time around them. And again, whether or not you get to the root of the issue with every conversation, that's beside the point, but you can't run from, you know, uncomfortable situations or conflict. Like, you know, if, if you just at the end of the day, like, ah, they're an idiot. I'm not going to deal with them. I'm just going to do my own thing. Like, how is that going? Like, what, what is that ultimately going to accomplish? Like that's not going to manifest into something that's really, probably that successful you might not agree on things you know 100 but ultimately you know we chose a profession that we chose we don't get to be the sport coach like i don't get to go make the calls on what they do in basketball practice i don't that's never going to be my job so i'm just doing my best to support them from a physical you know standard and, and understand more about what practices look like and games and then you know really where you need to be unified i know this isn't you know necessarily addressing people that are outside of this, uh, outside of this realm, but you need to be unified as a support staff to be able to go, okay, well, we have a unified message, whether or not we're on the same page, we have a unified message in how we're communicating back to this sport coach. So if we're completely, you know, 180 degrees different, at least we're, we're unified in, in, in that message. So they're not hearing something different from everybody else. Cause that's another thing where, you know, if a sport coach comes talk to the strength coach and it's like, Hey, we're not strong enough. And then they might talk to somebody in sports medicine and they say, yeah, well, they're, they're doing the wrong exercises or they're not addressing these things. And that's why maybe injuries are happening. So, I mean, what is, what does a sport coach think? They want to be like, okay, what's the quickest fix? What's the easiest thing that we need to do? And then they might start to assign like, well, they have expertise in sports medicine and injury prevention and you don't. So you need to do what they're doing or what they're talking about. 
So again, that lack of unification between the support staff can really undermine what you're trying to accomplish in regards to, you know, that communication with the sport coach. Breach. <laughs> yeah. What Done this a long time. Yeah, man. No, it's, it's well thought out. Um, I always wonder about like the, uh, you know, the journey of like uh, bringing kids in, especially like a, you know, 18 year old kids, especially, I mean, even working with the girls, which I think is always interesting too, in that you almost have to sell them like, Hey, this is a performance-based program. It's going to allow you to do your, like you said, uh, you know, the guys just want to come in and bang some weights and fucking be some bros. Whereas sometimes the girls, you got to get in there and like explain to them, Hey, this is going to benefit you. But seeing that like maturation process from like 18 to 21, 22 years old, where all of a sudden like, Hey, the program that we did when we first started is very different than the one that we're doing later on. And then you have, uh, you know, like uh, women's team sports where you have these kids that are, um, you know, really following the span. So I, I sometimes wonder, uh, you know, like, how does the program change? How does it evolve? Uh, you know, what's the narrative? How does it build over time opposed from, you know, talking to somebody in their fourth or fifth year opposed from that, you know, uh, first year kid? Yeah, uh, I think what I try to do is, I mean, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier. If you're understanding personalities, there's some kids that like, they just want to check, check the box, right? And I don't say that in a bad way, but they like, okay, I'm good in a team environment. Like, give me what you think I need to do and I will do it. And, you know, over time, you're going to give me some of my testing and how I've developed and, and maybe some different stuff in different areas to help build me up where I'm, you know, not as good. And I'm good with that. And, you know, that's, that's probably the majority of the kids kind of fit in, in that camp. But you also have the kids that like, they see, okay, I'm in the group setting and now I'm, I'm starting to develop a little bit differently or, you know, I played a little bit more, I got a little bit more mileage and I want to know more of the whys. I maybe want to, you know, connect on, on a different, uh, in a different forum. Right. So I'd rather have like a one-on-one, -on -one. um, I want to spend more time kind of working on the things that I need to work on. I want it to be on my time as well. You know, I have kids that will be like, I really like to get a workout in after practice as opposed to, you know, they're always telling me I, I you know, my, my lifts Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but shoot, I want to get it on a Tuesday. I think I could do something here. I, I, like I try to find what, if there are kids that need that, like give them those opportunities as well. Like, yeah, I can't personal train everybody, but like, if that's, if that's the setting that is going to benefit you a little bit more, cause then we can kind of play mad scientist a little bit. Like that's great. And, and as kids, start to go through the program like i hope that i always have a handful of kids that are kind of in that boat or in that camp as well that i kind of just be like I, I i need some extras or i need some different stuff or what else can i do because i want to be i want to be better than everybody else so give me give me what i need to to have um and so you know exercises will change and sets of reps and all those things but i think it's it's really starting to connect with them from a relationship standpoint and see like what is what is the the coaching communication style that you need? What's the time that you need? What's that commitment look like? And even like, how do you want to be run through a workout? Like some of these kids don't want to have any conversation. They just want it to be about like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And other kids want to spend half the time talking about other stuff. And it's not that they're not giving the same amount of effort. And it's not that they're getting the same amount of benefit. It's just, that's the way that they're wired. Um, you know, I think about women's basketball. I, I got a couple of kids right now that are in that camp that, if it was just about like, yeah, I'm just going to give you this sheet and you know, I'm going to coach you, but they just wouldn't get as much out of it. They just wouldn't. Um, so I, I see the best coaches at the, the strength conditioning level, like start to diversify the program around again, that the relationship that they have with that kid. And, um, 
how how they've kind of discussed what that path is going to look like and what's going to lead them to success and then you know really working on being consistent with that shifting gears a little bit and i'm curious how have you evolved your internship program or your coach development program i recall bob leo having at nc state like maybe one of the few paid uh intern gigs Correct me if I'm wrong, but how have you gone through the, that Georgia experience walking in where more than half the kids are in that red shirt as the volunteer to now in a position where you can empower and educate a young coach? Yeah, I think we're just given more options right now. You know, we've had everything from, OK, people that just want to come in like strength conditioning is their thing. Right. So, you know, we build curriculum around that and what that experience looks like. We have other kids that come in that kind of want to be more of a hybrid, like I like the S&C side, but I also like some of the behind the scenes, the tech side. And so we have, you know, depth of knowledge on our staff in those areas as well. So their experience looks different and they might spend time with different people on the staff that have more of that skill set or expertise. And then you have, you know, we still have that one position that kind of serves as like, okay, if you've gone through an internship, but you're, you know, not quite into a, a full-time role or we don't have that available where we can still kind of float the boat to be able to pay you hourly and give you more autonomy and give you more leadership opportunity. Um, so, you know, that, that, that is still one of the options as well. So, you know, most schools just have the unpaid internship and it's like, everybody gets the same curriculum. Everybody has the same experience regardless of kind of where you need to fit. I think right now we're doing a good job of kind of diversifying what our offerings are between, you know, S and C intern that, probably is more in line with your, you know, undergrad or in grad school, um, more of kind of that sports science hybrid role. And then, you know, a true like, okay, you're, you're an assistant, you're paid, getting paid hourly, and then you'll, you'll get opportunities to interview, you know, for full-time roles when they come up or even with And uh, so, so that's where I think that, you know, we, we have, I think four right now that are in different internship roles, but like personalities are completely different and, and where I envision them ending up in regards to their career. Like some of them might be, you know, true S and C like collegiate. Some of them are going to be, you know, data science and some of them might be in a completely different industry altogether. So hopefully they're all getting something that they feel like hey, I'm being challenged. It's meeting me where I'm at with what my interests are. And, uh, you know, I, I I'm, accomplishing or building towards something that would help me in my future. Have you seen the industry strength and conditioning industry change over the last 10 years and any kind of forward vision based off those changes that you've seen for the next 10 yeah, years? No yeah, no question. I mean, there's just, there's just a lot of different types of people that are getting involved, involved in the industry that maybe before there was more, you know, like we talked about earlier, there's kind of more of that carbon copy. Like, Hey, I played college football. I really like to lift. And I want to be a strength coach. And I'm going to, you know, those were, those were like 80% of the people that were, you know, at the collegiate level. And now you're seeing, you know, maybe more of just a, a, a varied background of people that, you know, hey, I, uh, I like sport, um, maybe played a little bit in high school. And then, you know, I've, I've kind of got this data science background. Um, I think that, you know, I can still help out with some of the monitoring and, and some of the, you know, bar speed tracking and things of that nature. Um, you know, so I, I just think that there's there's just a, a more of a variety of people that are coming in because there's more opportunities. There's just more, uh, you know, different types of roles that people can get into. Um, and, and, and so, you know, in terms of what's being offered uh, in regards to what a typical day in a weight room looks like, I, I would say in the last 10 years that there's probably 
more layers of stuff, maybe sometimes, you know, not misappropriated, but just it, it's more, uh, you know, paralysis, right? Where it's like, there's so many different places that you're able to take in information in regards to social media, or, you know, the internet just pulling up every program and knowing kind of what everybody else is doing. So you're seeing programs that maybe don't represent like having a clear goal in mind. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that's better or worse. I, I just think that people are trying to say, like, I have to fulfill a lot of these, you know, different, different needs, like I have to be a mobility wizard, and I have to understand energy system development, and I have to be able to get somebody really strong, and I have to test these things at a high level. Um, I think you're seeing more people feel like they have to do more. So that's where I'm, I'm hoping over time that they're saying, okay, you know, we can build in more positions. I think, you know, we're not building new colleges. So building in more positions to allow people to, to work maybe at a higher level within a team, and then having these different personalities or different skill sets to be able to serve like, okay, we have a breadth of knowledge across the board with, you know, the physical training piece, but we need some people that have depth of knowledge in monitoring, we need some people that have depth of knowledge in, you know, player tracking, um, and to be able to have those kind of, you have those generalists on your staff, and then you have some more specialists. Um, and, and again, you're seeing some of the bigger schools kind of have that. Uh, it, it's not consistent across the board yet. I think it's obviously where there's, where there is money, there's going to be more of those opportunities. More money, more problems. More money, be, more yeah. opportunity. <laughs> so you say more, uh, so more opportunities, more problems. Interesting. Yeah, that's probably yeah, that makes accurate. Sense. Yeah. So that's why you do nothing. <laughs> I didn't know you were a nihilist. <laughs> mm, nihilist. Nihilist. Exactly. <laughs> um, got anything else? Need anything else you want to talk about? No, I, I really appreciate the time, and uh, I mean this has been fun. Uh, this was uh, this was kind of a breath of fresh air, yeah, just to be able to kind of talk about different topics and, and jump down some different rabbit holes. So, you know, hopefully uh, that's something you know your listeners can get something out of. And if they have any have any questions, they want to reach out to me. Uh, I don't know if you'll post email or oh, yeah, social yeah. media links or anything like that. Yeah, feel free to reach out. I think I, I do I do pretty well at uh, getting back. I'm, I'm I'm not you know on call all the time, but I, I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty reachable for. A strength coach. Well, for the people who are too lazy to go to the post, why don't you just tell them how to find it? Yeah, you? there you go. Uh, so uh, on Twitter, it's just N Brookerson. Uh, and my name is, if you think it's E-R, just reverse it. It's R-E-S-O-N. I'm sorry. I don't know why they, they spelt it that way. Um, <laughs> so N Brookerson uh, is Twitter and Instagram. And then email is NateBrookerson at gmail.com. There you go. Pretty Young simple. aspiring strength coaches. Maybe those in this room that are not allowed to talk or be on camera. We got an intern in the corner. Oh, yeah. Nate, nice. sorry about that. No, don't you wave at him. So he's waving at you. He's not supposed to be doing yeah. that. He's in actually, fact, he's not supposed to be making eye contact, even with the television version of you. He's waving us. at the TV version of you. There's a, I don't know. Yeah, we. So you can't see nice. it. Don't look now at he's, me. Hang on. Now he's hip thrusting. Don't His pants are coming <laughs> uh, No, Nate, thanks again, man. And yeah. Power Athlete Nation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in dramatic pause, strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing? Yeah, that was so dramatic. dramatic. (laughs) Fever is broken. But uh, all right, man. Thanks, Nate. All right. Yep. Take care, guys. Drop on, drop on, drop on. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. 
Follow Nate on social media, both Instagram and Twitter at nbrookerson, or contact him by email, natebrookerson at gmail.com. And don't forget, he's got that funny last name that is R-E-S-O-N. That's right. It goes against everything that you want to type. I promise. Until next time. Bye. Bye.